Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. Garnishes, former function, foundational part of a drink's creation, or afterthought. These are but a sprinkling of the topics we're exploring in today's Techniques episode. We'll also look beyond the tried and true, i.e. twists, olives, and cherries, and bring to light some of the cutting-edge techniques that allow the world's top bartenders to take a more holistic approach to cocktail creation. These are some pretty meaty topics, listener, but we have the perfect teacher on hand in the form of New York-based international jet-setter, Leo Robichek. From his days running the bar at 11 Madison Park, to his work across the multiple Nomad properties, and as a partner at Sedell Group, the James Beard award-winning author and beverage director has always taken a considered culinary approach to cocktail garnishes. And most recently, you can check that out at El Nico in Williamsburg. Seriously, I knew all this coming into today's chat, but Leo blew me away with his in-depth knowledge of the topic an innovative approach that allows him to keep drinks interesting and as sustainable as possible. To call this the 101 on garnishes is selling it short. Consider it a one-stop shop for everything you'll probably ever need to know on the topic. And it's all right here on the Cocktail College Podcast. We're in the Cocktail College studio today. We're joined by none other than the man himself. It's Leo Robichek. Leo, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, real pleasure to have you in here. First time in the studio, first time on the show. Yeah, for very first time, and you have quite a fancy setup. I love your wallpaper. Oh, thank you very much. I, I, I'll give a shout out there to our art director, Daniel Grimberg, who yeah. designed that custom vine pair wallpaper there. It's super cool. And this is going to be a back-to-back, first time for us, back-to-back techniques episodes here on Cocktail College. Last week we did bitters with Southern Teague. Today we got you in the house for garnishes. Uh-huh. Great. And I can't believe we got this far in the show in the show's history without really like focusing on garnishes particularly. Well, I'm going to actually kick this off with the first question for you today. Yeah. So we talk a lot on this show about, you know, that original definition of the cocktail. Mm -hmm. And it mentions, you know, sugar, bitters, water and spirit. But there's no mention of garnish. Do you think garnishes have become basically an essential part of cocktails? And do we have any sense of when that change might have happened? Because it wasn't there, as I say, in that kind of 1806 definition. You know, it's interesting that it wasn't in that 1806 definition, but it was there shortly after. Um, so the, that definition of a cocktail was actually for a specific cocktail, mm-hmm. um, which we now know is old-fashioned, uh, an old-fashioned whiskey cocktail or cocktail of any or spirit choice. But if you think about it and you look back at books during that date, there was definitely cocktails that had garnish. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when they started making fancy drinks, which we now refer to as cocktails, like you see things like the one I could think of that probably comes up uh, the most. um, Well, I mean, there's a few things. You see obviously a martini and, you know, you obviously see a Manhattan. You see things that have twists quite a bit. But then when you think of categories, you know, there there are specific categories that do have a garnish. So, uh, you know, cup was one of them that used to exist back then. And, mm-hmm. and that was sort of in those first definitions when cocktails were still, you know, a whiskey cocktail, you would have a cup and that would have, uh, you know, fresh fruits in it, or you would have a cobbler um, or you'd have a julep and all of those would, would have garnish um, as a recognition. So I think that 
you know, as, as we go on in time and as we learn to create recipes and there wasn't a lot of cocktail books back then, you know, maybe we need to find a cocktail that's not one of the things that you think about. But I think that they were actually almost even more prevalent back then because I think sometimes those garnishes really made a specific drink. Mm-hmm. And is that from like a, a, a form or a function perspective there? You know, I think it's I think it's a little bit of both. I think the one thing about enjoying cocktails and enjoying food is a visual aspect. But I think in those times, all of those garnishes, none of them were superfluous. They mm-hmm. all added something beyond a visual measurement. They all added an aromatic or a flavoring to that cocktail. Um, you know, probably the one that's easiest seen is a twist, a twist of sorts. It not only adds an aromatic, but it definitely changes the drink that you're making. Mm-hmm. You know, a martini without a twist and a martini with a twist are two very different things. A hundred percent there. Yeah. And again, like those, those kind of things, I, I guess that the whole form function question too is like something that's becoming quite a bit more prevalent, the the twist and discard, right? Or express and yeah. discard even, right? So where you're like, you're maybe using that as an ingredient there. Actually, yeah, as you're describing those historical drinks, I think of, is it the Crusta? Which yeah, is that's that exactly the one. one I was thinking of. And I kind yeah. of come ahead and it just came to me. But yeah, a, a Crusta in general has that horse's neck. Yeah. And that beautiful horse's neck with, and it also has a sugar rim. And I want to say that's a pretty historic drink, right? Like that ain't, that ain't like a recent decades invention. No, that's, you know, that's definitely from the late 1800s. You, mm-hmm. you got the Crusta. But there was there was definitely drinks before then. I think that's when already we had we had this creation of fancy drinks per se, you know. And in that time period, there's other things like an angel's tit, uh, which is, you know, a layered drink. But one of the uh, prevalent parts it was served in a small wine glass is that it had a cherry, hmm. um, and that was I guess would look like the nipple. But I, if I believe it was maraschino and a float of cream with a brandy cherry on the bottom. <laughs> it actually is better than you think. It sounds quite delicious. It's, yeah. it's quite indulgent, but quite delicious. Yeah, it's definitely indulgent. Uh, sadly, I, I can't consume any of them because I'm lactose intolerant, but it doesn't stop me from trying. So, yeah, you, know, you can have a little bit here and there, I hope. Yeah, until my stomach hurts and then I stop. <laughs> I don't know, lactate? Mm. I'm not too sure. I, I've heard that's out there. Um so I guess I probably actually skipped over this in the beginning there. But yeah, principal functions of garnish, we're talking, we mentioned about them there. They might be an ingredient or they might also be to heavily kind of uh, upgrade the visual appeal of the drink. Yeah, you know, I used to have a very strict rule for me that everything that was in a cocktail had to be functional and the garnish should not be superfluous. And I think my mind changed later on in life. And I remember when I when I was first really at Eleven Medicine Park before I went to Nomad, um, I was I was so stern about that. Like I don't want anything extra in my drink that's not doing anything besides the visual element. Which, and then at some point in my life, I started realizing that visual ele- elements matter. And I think at Eleven Medicine Park, we were one of the actually the first you know multi Michelin star restaurant or fifty best restaurant that had a cocktail program. And um, I think for a lot of times we were a, not hesitant, but we were a little nervous about. Um, incorporating things that might have looked too whimsical or kitschy. Hmm. Um, and then we just went full on in. And um, and I think that started with us being able to put a tiki glass that went in the dining room. So imagine you're having a three Michelin star meal. And, you know, this is probably like 2010 and, or 2009 and you see a tiki glass come out. Wow. At that point, we didn't have three Michelin stars yet, but we had a Michelin star. Mm-hmm. Um, but... At that time, it was it was uh, very different. <laughs> a lot of people were like, what is this? And then from that moment on, I was like, you know what? Bring back fun because that's something we try to do as well. We, you know, we try to bring this element of fun mm-hmm. um, within 
what is normally considered for lack of a better word, like pretentious experiences, right? Whenever you go to like a you know three Michelin star meal, and it's not that case now. Yeah. Uh, but back then, you know, in the two thousand six, seven, eight, nine, ten era, they weren't ever synonymous with fun, and mm-hmm. that was the one thing that we always tried to integrate. So for me, I think that there is a place for garnish uh, that you know might be, and I don't even want to say superfluous, but that just um, only interacts with one of your senses. Because to me, a cocktail in general. The way I create cocktails is uh, based on sort of ideas and sense memory. And for me, every cocktail should have a little bit of a story. And every cocktail in the world doesn't need to have to, but that's the way I create my cocktails. Um, And for me, a garnish is something that either adds something or one of the elements to enhance the drink. Mm -hmm. And that, I I, want to touch upon that, that kind of philosophy you had maybe before starting out at EMP. Was that kind of informed by the kitchen? Because I I have a you know, kitchen background myself mm-hmm. here. And and very much there is that school of thought in the kitchen. Nothing should be on the plate that doesn't add to the dish. And I think that yeah. like the, the microcress and the edible flowers stretch the definition yeah. of that, right? But um, that's very much a chef's way of thinking. So is that part of the inspiration or is that just how you thought anyway? Yeah, you know, I think it had to be. Um, I I was never lucky enough to have a mentor in this world uh, when it came to cocktails. So I always felt a bit insecure. Um, I didn't come from, you know, the Audrey school or the Sasha school. Um, I I never worked in one of those great places. Everything I did was sort of self-taught from one of the few books that I had. And I got lucky that at 2005 at 11 Madison Park, there was no one really doing the cocktail program. And it had opened, a lot of people don't know this, in 99. Um, But it was just a zero Michelin star like bistro. And it, and it, it, it it was great for what it was. But the cocktail program was the same exact program that was there from inception, which was actually made by Eben Freeman, uh, crazily mm. enough. When I got there, nobody knew a recipe to any of the drinks. People just made it differently. And I was lucky that I was into it and I was a lot of play. Mm-hmm. But with that, I went back and, you know, as we progressed there, I guess a lot of my uh, ethos in terms of food and beverage came from my surroundings. And that is being in a place that I, you know, had a lot of accessibility to the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the, the things that sort of set us apart in that at that time, there was a lot of amazing, well, not a lot, but there was a handful of really amazing cocktail bars. There was, you know, obviously Pegu and Flatiron and uh, Milk and Honey. And then there was Death & Co. Uh, and then shortly after was like Maya Well and um, PDT came, you know, around that same time. And all those places were these craft cocktail bars and the one thing that I had that they didn't was a full kitchen with really cool tools and mm. uh, an amazing pantry. Uh, but also my biggest weapon per se was that I had um, amazing chefs that were into it as much as I was. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's sort of how I developed my own style of cocktail making, which, you know, and now has sort of become like the nomad way. And it's pretty cool. I never thought that that would happen. But, you know, we really started making very savory and kitchen centric cocktails. Mm-hmm. Um for no other reason than that's what it would go with our food and what would go with our experience. And also that's what I had available to me. Mm-hmm. And it just made sense. I would sometimes taste things that chef would make and it would inspire the cocktails that I would make. And then I remember years in, there was sometimes the cocktails that we make that would inspire one of chef's dishes. And it was really cool um, how that sort of happened and how we became uh, very sort of symbiotic in that way. That interaction. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. And I, I guess one final EMP question for you here, because yeah. it's very rare that people, especially people listening, but most of us get to kind of see behind the scenes at an establishment yeah. like that. 
I was there fairly recently and, and they were kind enough to give me a little bit of a tour and I don't know whether it was the case when you were there, but they had this kind of service room between the bar mm -hmm. and the kitchen where the coffee service happened. And yep. then the cocktails... The lazy season. Exactly. Yeah. Would be bust for the restaurant. And I'm like, hearing you talk about the equipments and mm -hmm. everything, but also space is a luxury that a lot of those kind yeah. of uh, East Village, Lower East Side bars wouldn't have had at all where yeah. you guys have that. Well, you know, it's funny because that came from a lack of space. So I actually designed that bar. Oh, really? Yeah. So we did a renovation because it had been almost 20 years since it was open. And we did a renovation in the 2017 to 18 era. And that's actually when we did EMP Summer House. And we were trying to get more seats into the bar. And with the way that we built the dining room, there just wasn't an area that was really a service bar. And um, we thought that if every single dining room employee had to come up for those tables, because there's for for a three Michelin star restaurant, there's actually quite a lot of seats. It's about a hundred, a little over a hundred, but people would have to walk in through the experience that everyone's having at the bar, and then walk back out through this tray. And we're like, how can we do this so it, you know they don't have to? We don't have to ruin the 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 experience that's happening at the bar. And that's how we sort of created that lazy Susan. And they were already picking up wines on the other side because with all of the pairings we had built in those Eurocovs, because it just, if not, think about it, you have an 11 course meal. And if you're doing wine pairings or, or beverage pairings, that could be, you know, 11 to 13 times or maybe more that you're coming to the bar. So if you can minimize that shuffling of people throughout the space and it could feel more intimate, um, it made it made so much more sense. And then we could also acquire some more seats um, so what we did is created that lazy Susan and I'll tell you, it was, uh, it was hard. Um, you have to learn to move that piece of equipment yep. just right. So you don't mess up the cocktails and me being a crazy person that I am, I wanted to get the last visuals on it. And once it goes around and once it turns, you don't see it anymore. And I was like, <laughs> wait, what is going out into the dining room? Because um, you don't know how the server is carrying it and whether, you know, if that wash line's pretty high, then you yeah. might be a heart in your mouth situation there. And I don't know how long it's sitting there exactly. before somebody picks it up and then it's going to a coffee station, which has some warm things. But at the end of the day, our, our team was amazing and is amazing that still exists there. I worked with a lot of those guys, you know, I was there for uh, 2005, 2020, so 15 years of my mm -hmm. life. And and they they were as if not even sometimes more perfectionist, like mm -hmm. the amount of people that would come back be like, oh, I need you to fix this. And I'd be like, great. Uh, and it took a minute for us to get there, but it just took a bit of training and, and it was pretty cool. Yeah, but I'm happy you noticed that. It's a, <laughs> it's a fun little detail, yeah. yeah. So on the garnish front here, I want you to imagine a situation here where I'm starting out in the bar world, mm -hmm. but I have some common sense about me, but I've never mm -hmm. worked in a bar, never worked in a kitchen. But I know that the most common cocktail garnishes are probably going to be a citrus twist, olives, and that cocktail cherry, maraschino cherry. Mm -hmm. what, are, what is some of the crash course that you're going to give me starting out at your bar? Like, what do I need to consider for each one of those classic garnishes, whether it's like, I don't know, Sam, buying lemons from the supermarket or the, su the supplier sends in the lemons. What am I looking for? What am I looking for from the olives and, yeah. and the cherries? Well, I, look, I think it's very different when you're doing it at home and when you're doing it in a, in a bar and restaurant. And I think the first thing that you need to think about is, are we pretending that this is for home use or restaurant use or bar use? Uh, let's say, let's say for, let's go with bar use. Okay. So for bar use, I think the most important thing that you need to think about is what kind of bar am I? Mm -hmm. Am I a high volume bar? And I know most people probably don't think of 11 Madison Park as a high volume bar, but that's the way that we looked at it in terms of the amount of cocktails that we put out. 
is probably was probably significantly more than what a craft cocktail bar would put out for the amount of bartenders that we had. Hmm. Um, because most tables would start with a cocktail or two. Um, so if you're doing that versus you're a craft cocktail bar where you have time to do everything in front of the guest in front of you. And again, there are craft cocktail bars that are high volume bars. I think Nomad was a perfect example. Absolutely. Um, but then you need to decide how you're going to do your garnish. So for us, we did all of our garnishes beforehand. Um, so in our steps of service, all of our garnishes were prepped well before. So it didn't take much time post making that cocktail to make that garnish. If we would have had to make the garnish fresh every single time, which some would argue might be the best way for a lot of the garnishes, it would take an extra 30 seconds to a minute in order to make that garnish. So for us, when we're doing twist, for example, in citrus, I actually look for something a little different in my citrus that I look for for juicing. And I thought, no, that sounds counterintuitive, but for lemons, um, I usually, I'm going to give you some like weird numbers, but I usually look for, for anything that is up to 125s. So 105s to 125s, which means in a case you get anywhere between 105 to 125 lemons. Anything more than that, it's going to be too small. And the reason that's important is because we always want our lemon twist and our orange twist to be cut approximately the same size. Just not that it makes it any better, but it sort of does. You can control the amount of twist you're put. I mean, the amount of oils that you're putting out. I also want those lemons to be quite firm. Any lemons that are going to be softer may be better for juicing, um, but for garnishes, that softer rind, you're gonna. Um, it's going to be harder to cut, and you're also going to lose a lot more of the oils when you're cutting it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the way that we do it is we do knife cuts. So we cut it with a knife, and then we peel it with a knife. And then we remove the pith with a knife. Interesting. And the reason we do that is because it needs to last for the whole service. And if you do it that way, they actually last for a few days. Um, If you do it fresh to order, you might get more oil when you're doing with a peeler. And then you might have to clean up the twist with your peeler. I mean, with your knife. You can't do all of them with a peeler before because they dry out because you can't get enough pith. So unless you put a lot of force into it and then... It becomes quite hard. Not everyone can get that sort of force. So that's for lemons. For oranges, oranges are always going to be bigger. So we do two different types of oranges. We do garnish oranges and we do juicing oranges. For juicing oranges, we do Valencia, so thinner skin, uh, a little sweeter. And then for garnishes, which don't get me wrong, we also juice them because we don't want to waste, um, we do uh, navels. Navels have a thicker, thicker skin. They almost have like what looks like that double skin. Uh, and then we try to get something of a similar size. So for these, you're usually going to get 95s and then you're going to cut them in a way that the lemons and the oranges are cut about the same mm-hmm. with the navels. Again, same thing. You don't have to worry as much with navels cause they usually have a thicker skin, but if they're too thin, um, it's going to be a little hard, uh, especially if you're using the peeler technique versus a knife technique. Mm-hmm. Um, with olives for me, I know. A lot of people don't like this, but um, I'm a fan of olives with pits in them. They just taste better, and you just give them a little side ramekin for them to put that pit. Um, Before, in the beginning, we would only do pitted because I think the world hadn't gotten used to olives with pits in them. And by the world, I mean uh, the U.S. Um, (laughs) I think the rest of the world probably might have been pretty suited for it. Um, But for us, um, I think we had to wait till everyone sort of caught up because, and once they do, I think they're great. Um, I like a little bit more salinic, fleshy, like meaty olives. So for me, anywhere between like a Castle Vetrano or a Giraffa, I think works best for cocktails. Uh, anything else that has um, that has either too much salinity or um, that might be a little bit acidic, 
um, or that might have a different flavor um, doesn't always go really well with the cocktails, at least not in the perception of what people see as olives. With cherries, uh, this goes a lot. We could pick so many different types of cherries. Um, we used to brandy our own cherries. I don't recommend that because cherry season is very short. You have to do a lot of them. And if you don't do them correctly, then they start uh, fermenting or disintegrating. We would do brandy cherries and they would last for quite a long time. But still towards that end of the year, they might not be as firm still as some mm-hmm. of these other cherries. And are you picking those as well? Yeah. That's a task. It's not that bad. They actually have cherry pitters and it's like this weird thing. It's It looks like a tweezer, but on one side it's got like, or have you ever like gotten any punch. piercing? I, um, I have pierced my own ear in a bar once, but that wasn't professionally. That's a different well, story. Well, if you see piercings, <laughs> they have something that looks exactly like it. Like mm-hmm. if you get your tongue pierced, your ear pierced. So it's circular on one side and then it's got a little punch that goes to another. Yeah. And it's it, they have them for cherries and it's quite easy. Um, but if not, like depends. Like, do you want cherries that are a little bit higher in sugar content? Then I would go for those Maraschino cherries, the Marasca cherries, the ones that Luxardo makes. They have a bigger sugar content with that. The only recommendation I have is to, to drain them well, because if not, uh, a lot of that sugar adheres to it. And once you put it in the drink, it sweetens the drink. Um, but then they also have the, the griot or the griotine cherries, uh, which are brandy cherries, which are quite popular. And those just have more of, they have a little sugar content, but they have more of that like brandy kick to them. They're the ones I prefer to use. But if you're in a place that is a restaurant and you have children that are coming in, that might want cherries, you can't give them those mm. because they definitely have alcohol. <laughs> they do make some that the alcohol is cooked out and they have the Fabry ones. So there, there's a lot of different options. Uh, I would just say don't get those like bright red, you know, <laughs> what they call the the other... Cocktail cherries, yeah. ironically. No, what yeah. are they called? I, I haven't bought them in so long that I don't know. <laughs> That's a good um, flex. But yeah, it, it's been a while. All right, so I've got a couple follow-up questions there, by the way. Phenomenal advice. So thank yeah. you very much. As this new bartender, I'm feeling I'm feeling confident in my garnish yeah. game already. Well, here. I'll say the one thing that you forgot is another thing that we use quite a lot for garnishes is mint. And I will say this is probably going to be the hardest one. And every time we go to any new city, it probably takes us a good few weeks to get the right mint. So mint for cooking and mint for garnishes are very different. Hmm. Um, so a lot of people like the delicate mint, mints a weed, and most of them grow, um, sort of side heavy and might be really beautifully aromatic. Also a lot of the more, um, artisanal mints like chocolate mint and all of those aren't great for garnishes. They're very thin. They're very young. So for mint, you want to ask them for, I want old mint. And what I mean by that is not mint that's been sitting around a long time, that the plant is older, uh, it needs to have a thicker stem and it needs to be top heavy. Because if not, you're not going to get a beautiful, what we call, some people tell me it's an inventive word, but it's what we use for training plush. So like a little like mint bushel. Mm-hmm. And for me, like obviously your mint can't be brown or black. Um, it needs to be sturdy and aromatic. And for me, like the more mint, the better. Like I would always say, don't give me one measly sprig of mint. Otherwise, what's the point of putting it in there? <laughs> give me three, four or five, if not maybe somebody six or seven. It should look plentiful and it should be really aromatic because that's the reason you're using it. Um, so it's, it's sort of hard. Um, you know, you could look at spearmint, um, they tend to be a little thicker, but I would definitely call around to multiple places and ask for samples, um, of mint because a lot of times you're going to get a kilo of it and you're only going to be able to use a quarter of it. Not even, sometimes not even that. Jeez. Obviously you'll be able to pull the other mint, but, uh, the other leaves to use for something else. But for that beautiful top heavy garnish mint, you're, you're going to want something 
that's very specific. Mm-hmm. Um, in New York City, I shouldn't tell people because, you know, it's what we use and it's sort of our, our, our secret weapon there, but it's hard. So in New York City, we get it from SEA, um, which is one of the purveyors here, and they know what we're talking about. We get them. Um, in LA, I forgot who we got it from and in Vegas as well, but it took us a while to get the right mint in each of those places. In London as well, like I had to literally show them photos of the mint that I wanted. And in London's a little different. You go, there's there's big like um, farm conglomerates or like these purveyors that get from a lot of like mm-hmm. s- farms. So they have like these big markets that are their their commercial warehouse markets. So I went around and walked around and looked mm-hmm. at things and then they had some stuff grown for us. But it is it is it is quite difficult to get the right man. I mean, yeah, again, I can pop in with some kitchen experience here just from from the London days. It was very interesting that even for like fresh produce yeah. Like we would go to, I think we had like Mash was one provider. I think Billy Bean was another. Nothing to yeah. do with the money ball there. But I think it was like, I know to get my tomatoes from this guy yeah. and I know to get maybe my herbs from these guys. And it's just whatever. Like that was always yeah. the case. There are some cool places now um, that are urban farmers. So hmm. there's one called Farm One here. And we haven't had them grow mint for us, but I'm pretty sure they can do it. Um, and it's city farming. A lot of them are done. Um, they're all organic. A lot of them are done in uh, old um, shipping containers. And there's one in New York, sorry, in London. I forget where I am half the time. <laughs> uh, and that one is called From Crate to Plate. Uh, and they, they do some cool stuff too. So that could be another source that you go and mm-hmm. look for. And for the home bartenders, two follow-up questions here on Citrus. First of all, Roughly speaking, you mentioned those different sizes of lemon mm-hmm. and orange. If I'm imagining a uh, tennis ball in my hand right now, maybe two thirds of the size of that for a lemon. Is that what you're looking no, for? No, the maybe... lemon, it's probably going to be maybe about the size of the tennis ball to maybe like seven eighths. Okay. And then the if orange is going to be a little bit larger. Mm-hmm. Maybe more of like, not quite a softball, but just smaller well got it i think there's two different types of softballs but uh <laughs> may, maybe a baseball i have to see if baseballs and tennis balls are maybe about the same size but yeah, yeah. maybe maybe that's the size but just yeah. so just a little bit bigger there for the orange yeah this one's very specific for myself so i like making martinis at yeah. home and i drink my martinis with a twist sometimes mm-hmm. discard i don't drink a lot of lemon juice cocktails because mm-hmm. yeah that's usually where i'm going so i end up with this situation where i have a lot of peeled lemons mm-hmm. And I just kind of put them back in the fridge, but then they dry up. Mm-hmm. And by the time it comes to using them, I can't squeeze them. What should I be doing with that? Say I have like fully peeled lemon. Mm-hmm. What should I be doing with that to kind of preserve it or just use it as soon as possible? Well, preserving it is a hard thing. Um, I would say one thing that you can do is get a, a moist towelette, not wet, not wet at all. So take like a paper towel and squeeze all of the water out of it and then wrap the lemon in it. Uh, and that'll make it last a little bit longer. If it's wet, it'll just start molding. Um, but I would do, like, if you're somebody that cooks, I would just use that in cooking in sauces. Uh, you can use that in um, in a lot of other things that you might do. Like, if you are a home bartender and you want to try some different things, you can make um, more sort of stabilized lemon juice with it. You can make a sherbet or you mm-hmm. can make some sort of, not quite an oleo, but you can definitely do like a sherbet or something along those lines or acid adjust the lemon. It'll make it last longer. Um, but for cooking, I would just make a salad dressing. Nice. Yeah. Good tips there. Just use it fresh, Tim. Um, yeah. So or make some lemonade. <laughs> Life gives you lemons. You know yeah. what to do. Uh, if you, I wish there was like a miracle thing to like save your lemons forever. But I will tell you, 
if you're gonna if you want them to last longer, don't use a knife technique at home and use the peeler, and then it'll last a little bit longer. Perfect. So we've gone traditional there.、Mm-hmm. I want to stick with fresh for a second here. Yeah. What are some of your favorite fresh ingredients to use as a garnish? What have been some go-to's over the year?、I'm、not saying by far that we are the first people to do this,、um, but I think we sort of became known for doing this.、Uh, a lot of cucumbers. So、um, we do. We use the mandolin. So we do cucumbers, horses necks. That we do that wrap around the glass. You know, I think Nomad started doing that from from day one in 2012, and that became something that was quite popular. So we like the idea of horses necks in all sort of shapes, forms, and sizes. Celery ribbons, rhubarb ribbons depends on what else. Like we, I mean, all sorts of fresh fruits and berries.、Um, what do we mean by ribbons there? So what we do, like you take a celery stalk or a rhubarb stalk, and then you do one of two ways. I just I take a peeler, but you have to get a Y peeler.、Um, so that's just the. The cheaper sort of peelers that you see that just have like the peeler, the the blade across the top, and then it looks like a Y beneath.、Um, and then you're gonna go not on the side that has the two pieces coming out, on the side that is sort of rounded. You just start peeling, and you push down quite hard, and you peel it, and you're gonna get like a horse neck of a of a celery or horse neck of a rhubarb. And then、um, we get like a nice bath next to it. And what we do is after we peel it, we roll it. And you roll it like、uh, as if you're rolling a croissant, and then you put it in the ice bath, and then it gets hard, and then you could just sort of open it up a little bit, and it makes like a little ribbon. Very、um, nice. The only thing with making rhubarb ribbons is that rhubarb is not insanely tasty on its own. <laughs> so、um, if people are going to eat it and it's present, then I would probably compress it afterwards. So just maybe take like some rhubarb syrup or something, and either cook it in. Uh, a sous vide bag, or or just let it sort of sit, or else、um, you can use it if you have a fancy vacuum sealer.、Mm. You can just sort of not put it in a bag and put it in a shallow like dish that has a little bit of that、um, liquid, and then close it and let it sort of. Because what happens is that changes the pressure inside, and then as as you open it, it sucks up the liquid into the solid, and then it sort of releases again. So that's how the infusion happens. But yeah, those those are some things that we like doing. I always get worried about using those machines. I, I've spilled too many bags of beef stock that、uh, I've been trying to bag up in there. That yeah, that open liquids in there. But yeah, I always forget that that you can use it without actually having something in a bag that you're trying to seal. Yeah, the the trick is making sure that it's really shallow. You're going to use a lot less liquid than you think. It should maybe be touching about like maybe an eighth of it, up to maybe a quarter. So, because it's going to bubble, and if it bubbles too high on it, it might leak over. But if it's a, a tall enough container, it won't.、Mm-hmm. And that's how you, that's how you like compress a lot of fruits and other things as well. So you're、mm-hmm. basically taking whatever liquid you you have and and putting it into the solid. Going back to that cucumber there, so you were talking about cutting it and cutting it on the mandolin、mm-hmm. lengthways. Yep. And then, what are you using that core for? Is that going to maybe for a juice, or is that going for the kitchen, or something? Or yeah. So we try to be, you know, I will never say that we're a sustainable bar because I think that's next to impossible.、Um, but we we try to use everything from what we say from root to flower.、Um, so for us,、um, we always would if we're going to use cucumbers garnish. Then we're gonna have cucumber in some sort of juice form as well.、Um, we also prep all these garnishes beforehand, like I said. So something that we started doing a few years ago is taking the leftover cucumbers and lacto fermenting them. So we always have, or we've had, not always, but we've usually had some sort of either alcoholic or non-alcoholic lacto fermented cucumber drink.、Um, and it's really easy. You just take whatever you have left of that cucumber. 
If it's insanely dry, then you're going to want to add a little water. And I would maybe add about 5% water by weight to cucumber. But if it's not dry, cucumbers have so much water. If it's just at, at the end of that day, because you know you're not going to be able to use it the next day, um, you take 2% of the weight of the cucumber with salt and you mix it together, sort of, you could do it with your hands or with, with anything else and put it in a tightly, like an air sealed container. So you could do it in a jar or you can cryovac it. If you cryovac it, it'll happen faster. And then you let it sit for about three to five days and it starts lacto-fermenting. So you're going to get sort of like this acidified cucumber flavor. It's going to release the liquid and it's going to be a little salty. So it's going to essentially like what, how kosher dill pickles are made. Um, and you can use that leftover liquid um, and you can incorporate a little sugar to it afterwards and make some sort of lacto-fermented cucumber syrup, or you could just use it on its own, the lacto-fermented cucumber to use either in a non-alcoholic or alcoholic drink. Wow. And what's the kind of shelf life on something like that? If you leave it sealed, it lasts quite a long time. Just knowing the longer it sits, the more of, I mean, it'll eventually stop, but the more of that vinegary flavor mm -hmm. you're going to get because it's, uh, I mean, you're, you're having fermentation of lactobacillus and it's going to release lactic acid. So that's how you're going to, that's going to be the byproduct of it. So that's how you're going to get that sort of acidity. So it's going to taste a little vinegary per mm -hmm. se. Yeah, but we, we use a lot of things for garnish. Uh, right now we have something with gooseberries. Um, and those make a really cute garnish uh, because they have, we don't take the little husk off of it. Instead, we pull it up and twist it. Something else that we do is we, any byproducts that we have left over. So we, during this time of year, we make a lot of tomato cocktails. So one of the things that we like doing is tomato water. And it's super yes. simple. Just take tomatoes, put it in a blender, and then put it through we use like linen likes or you could put it through an apron or when I say apron, something that's not treated, something yeah, that's yeah. not washed, anything harsh. Um, or you could just put it through a few layers of cheesecloth. Mm -hmm. And then what's going to come out is the clear liquid, but you're going to have all of that red solids that are going to be left. And if you take that and just add anywhere between like, I don't know, four to 6% glucose powder and mix it all up and blitz it, you can spread that on a sheet tray and you could put it in the oven at something really low. I think that we do it at 180 Fahrenheit. Uh, and then you just leave it for like four to eight hours, depending on how much you're doing in the oven. Uh, and then when it comes out, you get tomato leather. Mm. Um, so you can incorporate a little extra sugar and, you know, salt, whatever you want to do. And with the tomato water, you know, you can incorporate other herbs or other vegetables as well. And you just take all of that and make a little leather from it that you could use as a garnish as well. It's funny. Some colleagues of mine recently went to eat at AMP just last week, actually. Sure. And I think one of their favorite parts of the meal was the tomato water. So I'm just, I don't know whether you had a hand in that or whether you, you learned some tricks there you from know, the kitchen. It's funny. That is the first time that the kitchen took something from the bar. Uh, really? We made, yeah. We made a tomato water cocktail and Daniel loved it and was like, this is really good. And then they took our recipe and started using it for one of the courses. This is pre-vegan too. Um, so it was served as like a tomato soda on the side that they were doing. Um, so yeah, I, I like to say I had a little hand in it, which is pretty cool. It takes a, it's, it's, it's a lot of work, right? In terms or is there's a lot of material goes into like the yield isn't the yield massive. is more than you think, actually. Oh, Tomatoes really? are so like, they're significantly water. I mean, it, the, the majority of it is water. Um, so it's, it's not that much work. The only thing is, is that it ferments quite quickly. So if you don't have a vacuum sealer and put it in the freezer, then it's not going to last you a long time, but it's fine. Just drink a lot of tomato water. It's delicious. Yeah, totally agree. You've kind of stepped into it already with some more of those, I, I want to say, like advanced techniques there. Mm -hmm. um, so we spoke about fermentation mm -hmm. a little bit. Well, not really. Maybe 
want to talk about maybe brining or also pickling, a way yeah. of using vegetables or produce as garnish that will also keep for much longer. Yeah. So we, we do a lot of pickling for a few reasons. A, it adds a great flavor to the drink, but also like, like I said, we try to use everything from flour to root. The other good thing, and this is actually something that I stole from the kitchen, now I use. So the kitchen, every time that the kitchen would make a new menu, I'd go over and see, obviously, what scraps they had left over. Working in a fine dining kitchen, they cut things perfectly. So there's a lot of leftover products that we try to cross-utilize. The other thing that they do is they do a lot of pickles for different things. Uh, and I would taste the pickling liquid that was left over because I would taste the pickling liquid that they had in it. And it would just go to waste. They're like, oh, no, we're not using this in anything. Sometimes they'd use it in a sauce, but never to that amount. So we started using that in cocktails. And, you know, I think that was during the time that shrubs became super popular, but mm -hmm. we always use some sort of pickling liquid in cocktails now. And now it's not only from what the kitchen uses. So like we for we do this tomato martini currently at El Nico, which is um, it's our new project in our new hotel brand called Penny uh, that opened in Williamsburg a few months ago. And El Nico's our, our Mexican rooftop restaurant and bar. And um, the tomato martini uses actually almost all of these ingredients that we talked about. It uses the tomato water as a dilutant. It uses the tomato stems that we infuse into the vermouth. And then it uses vodka. And then we put a little bit of the pickling liquid of the tomatoes that we use as garnish. So we take sun gold and we pickle them in a super simple pickle. It's just white balsamic vinegar, water, salt, and sugar. And as it pickles, the beautiful flavor of tomatoes left over in there. And we use that just as a teaspoon in the drink as well. Um, so it's almost like a dirty tomato martini. Um, and yeah, so that's that's another way of keeping something for significantly longer. <laughs> we do some candy things as well. Mm -hmm. We take some byproduct and make it in a paint. Uh, easiest way is either just doing like cocoa butter paint. So percentage of cocoa butter to sugar uh, to oil. Or you could do white chocolate or dark chocolate, which essentially you're making chocolate shell. Like, do you remember those chocolate shells? And you could just paint that onto the side of a glass, which gives um, a taste and an aromatic as well. Mm -hmm. There's lots of different techniques, you know, when, where a lot of people see the byproduct and they're like, oh, what am I going to do with this? I'm like, oh, what am I going to do with this? <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's sort of what creates cocktails, sometimes not of that season. Uh, the thing that we try to do at El Nico is we have one page that is fresh and one page that's preserved. So the fresh side are all ingredients that are uh, literally at the freshest in season right now. Nice. And the preserve side side is a byproducts of those ingredients that either we've used different preservation techniques in order to maintain the life. And it's either of this season, the season before, the season before that. So there's so many like great products, but you just don't want to have one menu of all tomato cocktails, you mm -hmm. know, so you might use that <laughs> for a different season. But you can use jamming, you could use jarring, you mm -hmm. could use curing. Um, you can use shrubbing. So uh, instead of fermenting it, you can actually just put vinegar in it, which is not too different than pickling. So there's lots of different techniques that you can use. Um, sometimes there is byproduct that you can't use because you've removed all the flavor. So you don't really want to use that. But yeah, there's there's a lot of things. Compost that one. Um, 100%. So that's a great point for us to, to move on to the next thing that I had here for you. Mm -hmm. So you have that fresh cocktail page mm. and you have the kind of more preserved side, mm -hmm. which means that maybe your bar menu is changing a lot more frequently than, than other spots that mm -hmm. might, you know, go for only a couple through the years, mm -hmm. uh, through the year, sorry. When you're coming up with these cocktails, obviously you have a repertoire that you can mm -hmm. dig into, but at what point, if you're creating a new drink, 
at what point does the garnish come into your thinking? Is that going to be there from moment one because you do have this more like almost holistic, like using everything yeah. philosophy? Or is it like, I've got the drink and this is how this is going to be the finishing touch? I would say 90% of the time, it's not a thought until afterwards. Uh, there's other 10% of the time where you're like, hey, I have a crap ton of tomato leather. What am I going to use with this? Or um, I have excess of this that I want to use in something. What am I going to make with it? Um, but usually it's the other way around. Usually it's like, hey, these are the flavors that we want to explore this season. You know, I think not every drink needs a, a garnish. You know, we I think the garnish is sort of that last thought um, where you make that first iteration of the drink and then you think, does it need anything else? So does it need another aromatic? That's one version of garnish. Does it need another flavor component? That might be another version of garnish. Does it need another visual component? That's another version of the garnish. You know, it's it's, it's interesting because in, in uh, the London uh, Nomad, in Nomad London, we have one of the bars called Common Decency and that menu changes even more frequently. And it's an ingredient-based cocktail menu, which is something that we did at uh, 11 Madison Park from inception um, but this is done a little differently. So it's eight different ingredients, and we usually prep about 200 of each cocktail. And once it's done, then it, flip, it flips over from another ingredient. But there's two expressions of that ingredient, and that means that there's two different cocktails. And on one side of the menu, it's all cocktails that um, are very classically driven, um, but that might be a little bit more whimsical in presentation. So those usually always have like fun garnishes. And... I think the reason is that a lot of times those classic cocktails, while they're absolutely delicious and they're balanced, you know, it's they might be like crushable or easy drinking and giving that extra dimension by having either a fun garnish, a tasty garnish, an aromatic garnish, um, or, you know, a, a garnish that's going to add um, some other flavor, I guess I already said tasty, um, is going to finalize that drink. And other times, on the other side of the menu, all the cocktails are a bit more conceptual. So it's something that, you know, I think... They're two very different styles of bartending, depending on where you go in the world. I think America is very much known for its fresh ingredients and more classically driven. Asia is a whole other crapshoot that depending on where you are, they do a lot of different things. Um, I think the UK and a lot of Europe now started playing with more sort of conceptual cocktails um, in terms of like they don't use as many fresh ingredients because things are very seasonal over there and it's really hard for them to get citrus year round that is good and also very expensive. So you see things that are a lot more technique driven on the back end. Hmm. And we've always, or we've done, we do both sort of sides. So in common decency, we have that sort of more classically driven, that it's more whimsical. And then we have the more conceptual. And a lot of times you don't want to add a garnish to that. Because a lot of times that drink is beautifully clear and it comes in a beautiful glass in, in a clear cube. And what happens when you take a sip, you don't know what to expect. And what happens is when you take that first sip, there's a ton of different flavors on the palate that you're trying to conceptualize that I think sometimes adding a garnish to those drinks might take away mm -hmm. from what's in there. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that all of them don't have garnishes, but the majority don't. So one looks more classic uh, in its iteration, but is more conceptual and more technique heavy in its flavor. And the other one is more classic in its style uh, but more whimsical in its presentation. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you mentioned that too, because you well, you answered what was going to be my next question, which is like, A, is it actually sometimes more courageous to turn around and be like, I'm not going to send this drink out with a garnish, right? Because like, as guests, we've almost come to expect that, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's become the standard. So, so, But sometimes, I guess, yeah, it seems like it would be more like, 
you know what, this drink has everything now and maybe even the garnish might be, as you said, kind of distracting in a way where there's there's so much to get from the glass. Yeah, look, it's hard because we live in the world of Instagram, right? We live in the world of photography. Um, so <laughs> if you're a bar that doesn't have garnishes, then you probably want to invest in amazing glassware and amazing ice. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> or if you're a bar that doesn't really need or care about social media, then do whatever you want because it's a very different experience when you're there and you're drinking it. Um, so we go, we we do both ends. And, you know, it's interesting because I think I told you in the beginning, I used to be very much of the mentality of the kitchen where, like, if it's not adding a flavor component, an aromatic component, it doesn't belong on there. And the more I think about sustainability and the more I think about the world and the more I think about fun, the more that I'm using crazy things that don't belong in cocktails at all. But they, like I said, every cocktail to me should have a story, should evoke a feeling. And the more I create cocktails that might have garnishes that, you know, are very out of, out of left field and that at the end of the day don't have a shelf life and um, that, you know, are, are shelf stable or that that sort of can live forever. Uh, and it's just because it adds a feeling. Mm-hmm. It adds a visual representation that you get fun. Uh, and I think a lot of times if you go to a place, and I guess you think tiki bars, right? They're the sort of the first ones that did this kind of thing. And you go there and it's like really cool looking and it's really fun, but the drink tastes like garbage, then it just becomes kitschy. But if it's cool and the drink is fun and the drink is delicious, then it becomes whimsical. Yeah. Uh, so for us, that's important. And, you know, when we opened Nomad in 2012, um, Nomad just felt appropriate for me to do large format cocktails. And this was in a time of punch bowls that were absolutely everywhere. And listen, punch has a place. I just don't think that place for me is a cocktail bar. And I'm such an OCD crazy person that I don't love serving punch in that way because A, it gets messy as people, like everyone's not great at ladling and the the more that they try to ladle and the more that they drink, it doesn't get any better. <laughs> um, and also punch has like, and has a sweet spot where it's delicious and before that it's too strong and after that it's too weak. And that also drives me insane. So I created um, something that you see in a lot of places now, which is uh, what we call cocktail explosions, which are, I don't know if you've seen them, but there are these large vessels that almost look like what spa water come out of. Huh. Um, and for me, I think that, like I always hated that you got cheated in a way whenever you got large format cocktails because large format cocktails never look as beautiful as a single serve cocktail. So I was like, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to create something that is even crazier. It's going to have more garnish than a traditional cocktail. It's going to be more beautiful. It's going to be more show-stopping. So we created this vessel that looked like it was old etched glass that had a spigot. So all you had to do is turn it on. Um, The only downside is always had to be in crushed ice. And that's a whole other conversation because if you do a crushed ice cocktail right, that cocktail will last significantly longer than if it's a cocktail that is on um, just regular ice. And um, we would garnish it to all hell. Like... And if it was a cocktail that normally would have like a lemon wheel and mint, this would have a line of lemon wheels on the bottom, a line of <laughs> lime wheels in the top, and it would have like a kilo of mint on top. And it was just over the top. And then each of your individual glasses were also garnished perfectly. And when I started thinking about waste more, I was like, okay, well, it does add something and it's beautiful. I'm wasting a lot of that stuff. So we started transitioning to other things. And, you know, the, one of the first cocktails that we put in there that was a jungle bird variation. And um, I ended up finding these birds that either you put in your like flower arrangements or these birds that you like 
have and hanging on your tree for for the holidays. And I started putting birds all over it. And it the garnishes were really cool and beautiful and it was like birds on branches and sticks and obviously everything was was okay, like nothing was toxic so that you can consume it. Uh, but the birds you wouldn't eat or you wouldn't consume, they were just visually beautiful and they brought a sense of whimsicality and I wasn't wasting all of this like fresh ingredients. The glass was garnished though because you were using that, mm-hmm. but in this massive vessel. And from there, we've done everything from birds to Barbies to trains to skulls. Like we we did this whole animal menu for a while and we would have um, this lamb head and we would like clean it and bleach it and then clean it again and cut it in half. And that was on top of one of our Mai Tais with like flaming uh, like lime eyes. So we would use a whole bunch of things that, you know, weren't creating extra waste in the world and, and, and we weren't using or throwing away extra food, but that was fun and whimsical. And that's when I sort of started, you know, thinking about like, why should a visual aspect not be as important as everything else? Mm-hmm. Especially when it's served in a way like that. Like it's not something that you're like taking off a plate because you're not eating it. Because that's the sort of the difference between eating and drinking is that you're not, you're usually eating every single thing on your plate, but you're not drinking every single component that's in your glass. Right. Yeah. Especially if it's like on the rocks. Yeah. You're not waiting to like yeah. finish that ice cube or whatever after the liquid is gone. Yeah. Correct. Um, Leo, like all great storytellers, they're circling back to the beginning with your final, with that answer there, which is wonderful. Um, but do you have any other final thoughts on garnishes in this topic before we move into our weekly questions to round out the show? Yeah, look, I, I, I think I would look at a cocktail holistically in the way that, um, in a way that you look at a dish or in a way that even you look at fashion with like Coco Chanel saying like, before you leave the house, Caesar, what ingredient that I don't need or one, one piece of jewelry or piece of clothing that I don't need and maybe take that off. And I, I look at that the same way as cocktails. And sometimes it's maybe you have to add one other component. But I look at it and I'm like, how does it taste? Is it balanced? Um, and balance isn't only sugar to alcohol to, to bitter to citrus. A lot of times something can be sweeter um, but it doesn't have the right mouthfeel because texture is another big important part. Like if a pina colada were not that texture and had that same sugar level, it would just be syrupy sweet. So think about, is there a textural component that I could do to add this? And I'm not saying like add, you know, like fried artichokes to your, to your, to your drink. So you'd have something <laughs> to crunch on. I'm saying like, look at the type of sugar that you're using. Um, you're going to get more texture from like a cane syrup than you are from a simple syrup. You're going to get more texture from agave than you are from simple syrup. You're going to get more texture from honey than you are from simple syrup. So think about that. Other times you might want to age something like beeswax or something else that's going to give it texture. It, now it's balanced in flavor. And then next thing you ask yourself, is it missing something? And it could be just the delicious, great daiquiri. But to me, a delicious, great daiquiri for our programs is not something that we want to showcase as one of our, our cocktails because it's great and we love producing them and we give a ton of them. We make a ton of them. And I think it's one of the most amazing drinks. But is that what you want to be known for? Is that your legacy? And for me, there shouldn't be a throwaway cocktail. So what can elevate that daiquiri to the next level? Like what can elevate this drink to the next level when you're creating something new? So is there an aromatic component that it needs? Does it need a twist? Does it need um, herbs? Does it need something along those lines? Uh, and then, or is there a, a bittering agent or a flavor that it needs to also give it like texture to dry it out a little bit? So those things are always important for me. And that's how I, I that's how I think about when creating a cocktail. Uh, and then it's like, does it need a garnish? And sometimes it might need that aromatic, but it doesn't need that garnish in there. So I always recommend, and when we do all of our tastings, we taste all of our drinks initially. 
We taste them after 30 seconds. We taste them after a minute. Then we taste them after five minutes and 10 minutes because that is the life cycle of a cocktail when somebody's enjoying it. And sometimes it tastes delicious immediately and it tastes delicious after 30 seconds. And then a minute in, you're like, ooh, something's happening here. And that can help you modify the drink as well. Hmm. So sometimes, like you were saying with a twist tisk card, sometimes you have a martini and as that martini warms up and as that lemon twist has been sitting in there, especially if it's one of our lemon twists um, that we cut thicker that has more pith, it might get overwhelmingly oily and bitter. So maybe all you want is a twist tisk card because you want that aromatic, but you don't want it changing the flavors. Um, so those are all things to think about when you're creating a cocktail. Fantastic. Well, you know, we did say at the beginning there, we wait 99 episodes here to arrive at the, the cocktail garnishes uh, <laughs> episode, but Leo, more than made up for it there. So thank you very well, much. Thank you. Now I'm going to hit you with five questions just yeah. to round out the show today, beginning with number one. What style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar or back bars? That's really hard because it depends on where we are. Uh, you know, Side Hustle in London and El Nico are agave-based bars. So it's anything that is agave-based. Uh, we still have other spirits. Uh, Nomad in New York um, definitely was more whiskey. Like, you know, we had a lot of agave products, but there was a ton of American bourbons and American whiskeys. There was a ton of scotches. Um, you know, London, we probably had more gins than any other place, but we still have quite a lot of whiskey and quite a lot of uh, diversity in what we have. Uh, LA also varied. So it's not one thing or another. I think if I had to choose, it would probably for sure be whiskey and agave. And that's probably because there are such diverse categories that you need big representations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're not really going to have a lot of different styles of vodka. You might have a few different styles of gin, but you don't need more than quite a few gins, um, unless you're a gin bar. And then it's not, you know, EMP. We had a lot of uh, Armagnac, Cognac, and Calvados and other brandies along those lines because A, we inherited a lot of it, B, we love it, mm -hmm. and C, it's sort of a nice thing for after dinner. Um, but I think it just varies. Mm -hmm. But if I had to give a short answer, as I've made it extremely long, <laughs> and I know these are supposed to be quick fire, <laughs> I would say agave or grain or agave or whiskey. I, I'm going to follow up quickly on that one because, you know, we've had this pandemic. It's been a little while since I've been able to get back to the UK and spend any proper time there. Yeah. Felt like when I left years ago, agave wasn't a big thing. I mean, I think one of the only places that really did embrace agave at the time was El Camion mm -hmm. continues to do so. Fantastic place. Pinchoir, right? Yeah. But is agave getting bigger and more popular over there now? Are they starting to embrace that more or have they already like really? No, it, it definitely has. I would say the general consumer, no. I would say the cocktail connoisseur, yes. And I would also say London is different than the rest of the UK. Um, but yeah, I'm actually shocked at the amount of agave that you could actually purchase there now. Hmm. So you can get Sotols. You can oh, get wow. like, yeah, I mean, you can get, they probably have like 40 different mezcals that you can buy, maybe like 50 different tequilas. It's it's quite, it, like every day there's a new product that's coming in. But hmm. um, I but do yeah. find it weird. I was uh, helping a friend out with something recently and he was having me look over a list and I was re reviewing the tequilas for him and I saw some of my favorite bottles on there at 37.5% ABV because of course they can sell tequila over there, right? At less <clears> than, I think they can sell it in Europe at 75 proof. Uh, that up? I haven't seen any tequilas and you're usually not supposed to sell tequila under 40. I think uh, that might only be the U or anyway, might, maybe I'm making that up. But. It might be UK, but I, we don't have any that are that low. No, because why Yeah, <laughs> why would you? <laughs> you know, like it, it just seemed odd to me. There were some brands that I knew that I'm like, huh, that's weird. Well, you know, the crazy thing, gins over there are a lot lower in alcohol. 
like beef eater straight 40 and beef eater here is 45. So when we were going over there. And people lost their mind over here when it went from 47 to 44, yeah, uh, like just in the pandemic. A hundred percent. And when we were doing, because it was always our well over here. Well, I hate to say the word well. It was always our house pour. And um, when we started recreating some of the cocktails, we're like, wait, what is happening? Um, and it's just not the the same proof. And that happens with a lot of almost every gin that I can think of. Uh, that is a higher proof here is usually around 40 over there. Huh, that's weird. Um, all right, then question number two for you. Which ingredient or tool do you believe to be the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? Uh, the one thing I never leave home without and everyone thinks I'm crazy and everyone thinks that I'm like pretentious for it is a refractometer. Everyone thinks that it's this crazy expensive product. I get it for $39.99 on Amazon. And uh, just make sure there's different ones. Make sure it's a sugar refractometer and make sure it goes from zero to 80%. And it's to measure sugar density, so your sugar levels. So if you're making simple syrup by weight and you use 50% uh, sugar and 50% water and you combine them by weight, you should get 50 bricks simple syrup, meaning that it's 50% of the, the solution is sugar. Um, but as you travel in the world, sugar is refined differently. And when you do it by weight, some sugar may have either different uh, levels of refinement and, or impurities or anything else, and you might not get a 50 brick simple syrup. Sugar is a, a bad one because it's usually always the same, but things like honey, completely different. Things like agave, mm -hmm. completely different. So if you're at home and you're agave nectar that you always buy, when you do a two to one syrup, it's at 55 bricks, and then you go somewhere else and it's at 50 bricks, the drink is not going to taste the same. So when I travel and I do a lot of pop-ups, um, I always bring it. Same mm. with fruit, if we're doing any of our syrups and that use fruit, you can't ensure how ripe this fruit is going to be when you're making that juice. Um, so for me, it's something I never leave home without. You don't need batteries for it. It just uses like, if you think about those, are they called kaleidoscopes that you would look in as a kid? Yeah. They would refract. Mm -hmm. It uses glass to refract the light. It's the same thing, except it, it basically calculates it and on a, not a digital thing, on, on a, a scale that you see visually and it tells you where it's at. So for me, that is the one tool that I never leave home without <laughs> whenever I go work in the bar world. That and a scale. Nice. Nice. Precision. Consistency. Yeah, for sure. These are the keys. Because everything else, like, I don't need a fancy spoon. I, like, I've, yeah, I could use a chopstick. Like, um, if not, I could use any spoon. I don't need a fancy mixing glass. Like, I mean, yes, if you're doing an event, you have a spoon. But if I'm at home, I hardly ever take out my tools. Mm -hmm. I have a jigger. And then I literally will grab a chopstick because I have it available and I'll grab a coffee cup and that's how I will make my drinks. And then I have a jigger and a strainer. Um, so I have a million and one tools, but they don't exist in my kitchen. They're in my bar or else in a locked away, not locked away, but in a closet. So everything else is easy. Like it's just, uh, it's just really that. Even I've shaken in jars, like lidded jars, bell jars, just shaking that. It's like a cobbler shaker. Um, but you can't, measure sugar density in any other way. <laughs> if you want to get super fancy, pH levels too, but we mm. don't go that crazy. Very cool. All right, question number three for you. What's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry? Wow, that's a hard one. I've actually gotten so much great advice. You know, something that I love to live by is, I guess, two things. I take what I do seriously, but I don't take myself too seriously. Um, I think that's a, that's a good thing for, especially in the time that we were all coming up in, you know, in the early 2000s. I think that bartenders took their craft very, very seriously and we forgot that we were providing hospitality. And we forgot that, you know, a part of going to a bar is making a safe place that is usually 
a place where people can come in and, you know, have their own experiences and create lifelong memories. Um, and a lot of times it's, you know, providing that safe, fun place that is very hospitable. So bringing that level of fun, I think, is important. I think the other thing that we always forget is that we're all on the same team and that we want the same thing. So, you know, this is something that Will always spilled and that I, I really live by. And it's um, definitely anytime you're giving constructive criticism, make sure you're doing it without emotion. I think a lot of times, since we love what we're doing so much, that whenever we see something that goes wrong, we could be a little emotional about it. And knowing that that other person that works with you wants the same thing as you do. So take a step back, take a breath and know that like, hey, it's not that big of a deal, but this is what we need to do in order to make it better. I think those are probably the two uh, that, that I live by the most. Nice. Nice. No, nice words of advice there for for work, for the industry, but yeah. also, you know, just to, to live by those those things. Yeah. And then also, like, if you're somebody that's starting in the industry and you're somebody that's starting creating cocktails, know that that cocktail that you create, you can't really, or a chef as well, sometimes you become very myopic and you think that it's amazing because you created it. And sometimes you need to take a step back and it's okay if people give you criticism on it because they only want you to be better. And sometimes it's really hard to see. Mm -hmm. So if I tell you the amount of cocktails that I created on first try that were absolutely vile and disgusting, like most people are like, no, but like it happens all the time. So just take feedback constructively and know that it's okay to change things. And a lot of times my younger bartenders, they might start with a drink and, you know, we will workshop that drink and there won't be any of the ingredients that they started with and it left over again. But it will still be of a similar ethos and of a concept of what they wanted. And sometimes they have a hard time with that. But for me, it's always going to be their cocktail because it was their idea. And mm -hmm. even though we workshopped it together, it's okay if it's not the same thing. Hmm. And I think a lot of younger um, mixologists or bartenders or chefs mm -hmm. or cooks um, have a hard time with that. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's just like, hey, you know, don't, don't take yourself too seriously in that way. Like, it's okay. Nice. All right. Penultimate question for you here today. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, what would it be? Hmm. One last bar. That's so hard because I go to bars for so many different reasons. Everyone always asks me, like, what's your favorite drink? What do you drink most? And I'm like, literally, for me, it's of time and place. Uh, so for me, it's how do I want to feel? Mm -hmm. um, I drink literally, well, not every spirit, but most spirits. I drink beer. I drink wine. I drink cider. What's the temperature outside? Am I celebrating something? Am I by myself? Am I with somebody else? So that's a really, really hard question because like if I want to feel like I'm getting a massive hug and I want to feel like I'm the most special person in the world and I want to go just for a martini, I'm going to go to the Connaught because the people there make me feel so incredibly special and I feel like fancy and I feel great. But I'm not going to go to the Connaught if I'm, you know, with a group of people and I'm looking to have fun and not to say it's not a fun place, but it's not like you go there for they entertain you, but you go there for like a special occasion or feel like this, I, I can't describe it any other word than a warm hug. Mm -hmm. um, if I want to go somewhere and I want to feel at home, I go to Tyrone Elementary. Um, you know, Monica and Alex are two of my closest friends and I think what they do is so inspirational and I think that they provide such amazing hospitality. But if I had to pick one last bar, well, I would want to go back to Nomad Bar in New York. It doesn't exist in that iteration, but it means so much to me and to me, it was generally fun and, you know, it's, you know, I'm sad that it's not there. So if I could go back to one last bar, 
it would be, you know, circa mm-hmm. pre-2020 to 2012 Nomad Bar. Well, I guess it opened in 2014, that bar, but Elephant Bar. That's, you are allowed hypothetical answers for this okay. question, so that is, that's a good one. And that also allows it to be democratic yeah. as well, there, where you're like, you know, going to... Yeah. yeah, and look, if I, if I, sometimes I want to be in the beach, and I want to mm. be just at any, <laughs> any little beach bar, or if I want to be skiing, I'm sure there's an apre bar I want to go to, but... Uh, you can't just pick one. It's hard when you're as well-traveled as you are, Leo, oh. to, to answer this question, oh, you know. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, I guess for me, I've spent the last three years in London. I'm back in New York now, so those are just in the top of my mind. Mm-hmm. You know, when I feel nostalgic, I go to Satan's Whiskers because it, it also feels like home. It feels like New York, and there's not many places in, in London that feel that way. Mm-hmm. All right, final question, and it's not what's your favorite drink, but it is similar. Okay. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last what would you order or make? Again, I mean, it's summer. I'm in New York City. In my last, I mean, look, honestly, I guess it has to be a delicious gin martini. Like it's two to one with like a lemon twist, depending on the twist, maybe discard. To me, it's such a a perfect drink and I like it for all occasions. But also if I'm going outside, like I sort of really feel like having a sherry cobbler right now. Like Famously a sherry fan, big yeah, sherry fan. I'm a huge sherry fan. Uh, you know, it's... I fell into sherry by mistake. Like, I, I don't know if we have time for this, but in 11 Madison Park, most people don't actually know this story. But before we got our write-up in the New York Times, before we got Frank Booney's first three, three New York Times stars, we were probably about a month away from closing. And Daniel came in 2006, and we alienated all of our guests and trying to change what we did. And this was probably at 2009. Um, and we just didn't make any money. And when a reviewer would come in, we'd call all our friends to fill the seats. And... Thankfully, once that review came out, um, we went from being like doing 30 covers to, you know, over 200 covers every day. Um, But the only reason we even lived a little bit longer was because when we purchased 11 Madison Park from Danny in order to do the Nomad Project. So I guess it was later, 2010, 11. um, Shake Shack is actually a project that started at Nomad. It started uh, by Carrie Heffernan and it started as like an art project in the park. Hmm. And Danny made us sell Shake Shack to him not for a lot, for $30,000, which let us be open for another month and a half. And um, during that time, I was given the directive of being like, hey, you can do whatever you want with the menu, you just can't buy anything. So, I mean, I could buy to replace, but I couldn't buy anything new. And at that point, there had been three different wine directors at EMP. One of them bought a shit ton of chartreuse. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that word. One of them bought a shit ton of Calvados. And then one of them bought a shit ton of sherry. And I was like, what am I doing with all this? <laughs> and um, I literally, in 2006, opened a bottle of sherry and be like, what is this? And it, was, it sounds crazy now because this is well before the sherry movement happened in cocktails. But we started making sherry cocktails in 2006 because I had to get rid of it. I, I had probably about 40 cases of sherry that I had to go through of all different kinds. Oh, my God. And um, <laughs> it ended up being one of our things, too, sort of split-based cocktails combining, you know, a cocktail that was one part whiskey and one part sherry or one part, you know, tequila and one part sherry. It made the drink in just like a basic sour or in any recipe just a little bit more interesting. And that's part of what, you know, got us uh, a little bit of recognition as well. And again, by no means did we start the sherry movement, but um, but we definitely were one of the first there to do it. It's actually crazy because when we opened Nomad New York, I had no clue 
um, the first year in, uh, somebody told us, they're like, hey, you guys know that you sell the most sherry in the world. And I was like, what? What? And they're like, you sell more sherry than most countries combined. And we were going through probably about 30 cases of sherry a week, <laughs> um, just because we had it in cocktails. <laughs> when we opened them at Vegas, we, in one month, bought all the sherry that they had for the whole year in Vegas. So they had to start buying more sherry. And then the same thing happened in London. We, um, we bought London out of sherry as well. Um, That's so crazy. We use sherry quite a lot. Mm -hmm. It was a shame that we had already covered the sherry cobbler before, because yeah. that would have been a great one for us to cover. But hey, Leo, we'll have you back one day to, to do one of those fantastic yeah. sherry drinks, because uh, yeah. it's not an ingredient we do cover as much as we should here. Well, I'm always around. Well, thank you so much again thank for joining you. us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Cheers. Okay, I know what you're thinking, folks. That was a lot of info. But here's the good news. Every single episode of Vinepair's Cocktail College is published on vinepair.com as a transcript. So you can check it out there all over again. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe. And please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seaside, who also composed our awesome theme music. Just give that a listen, folks. I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the Vinepair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, and art director Daniel Grinberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time.